This podcast was recorded on February 8th, 2021. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital or its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide updates or changes. Everybody, welcome to the Sherman Show. I'm Jeff Sherman here with my co-host Sam Lau. Hey, hey. And we have a very special guest today. He is none other than Grant Williams. He publishes the monthly newsletter, Things That Make You Go, hmm. And it's a it's a deep dive. I, I, I've been working on how to say that. It's a He's deep a dive, job. you know, talking about all the thematic ideas in the global financial markets. Um, I think really a lot of uh, we, we've been following you for many years on your publication, but I think you, you took a, a, a strange turn, a new turn last year with a really new series of podcasts. And I don't even have all of them. I, I saw it too. I think there's one with Stephanie Pomboy. Like she's awesome too. Um, there's one with Ben Hunt. Uh, we had him on recently, actually. Yeah. Uh, I know the, the one I listened to recently with Bill Fleckenstein as well. Uh, always very informative. So uh, maybe you can talk a little bit about what, what really pushed you that direction uh, to launch those podcasts. And we'll come back a little bit more into your background, but I mean, those are some heavy hitters in the financial industry. Uh, yeah, no, I, I, I'll be perfectly honest with you guys. What drove me to do them was boredom. I mean, it's, it sounds <laughs> ridiculous. I, I wish there was some kind of huge Machiavellian strategic plan involved, but there really wasn't. I mean, I, I was, like everybody else, back in kind of March, April of, of 2020, completely locked down. You hear it. I mean, the Cayman Islands and, and being locked down in the Cayman Islands is, um, is tough, right? I mean, it was, we were, they jumped on it early and it was no one's allowed out of their homes except for an hour a day. And then they shut the beach down. You weren't even allowed to walk on the beach. So it's pretty harsh uh, at the beginning. Um, the back end of it now, we have zero COVID here. So life is normal. So it's kind of worked out really, really well for them. But during that lockdown period, um, like everybody else, I'm stuck at home. And, uh, you, you know, I, I, I have a lot of um, friends around the world in, in the business who I, I love talking to. And, um, you know, I, I, I tend to pick people's brains as much as I can. Um, and I and I love being the dumbest guy in every conversation I have. You know, it's 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 great to be that guy because you're always learning. And so I just figured, you know, I'm going to have these conversations anyway. I'm going to be talking to my friends. And I'm going to be picking their brains about certain things. So, you know, why not let other people listen in? Um, again, I no real plan. I just figured I'll set a bunch of conversations up. And so that's what I did. And uh, you know, I, I thoroughly enjoyed every one of them. And and we kind of built an audience. And then um, later on last year. Uh, Bill Fleckenstein and I have a mutual friend in Mark Cahodis who who called us both up and you know when Mark calls you and tells you he wants to do something it's it's tough to say no to and he said yeah you got you guys should do a podcast so we started the end game and um, Steph and I had been talking about doing a podcast for some time uh, so we kind of lit that up which is called the Super Terrific Happy Hour we're both huge Seinfeld fans so that's where that title came from <laughs> uh, Ben and I you know I, whenever I talk to Ben I just love my conversations with Ben they're so different to the normal financial ones so. He and I started a, a random series of podcasts called The Narrative Game, just where I could pick his brains about the prevailing narrative, as you guys have done your podcast. And so each one of those three streams, all very ad hoc. We have no publishing schedule. It's not like we're set to do one a week or whatever. So we do one when we feel we've got an interesting guest or an interesting topic. And they've been great. And, um, and people have, have thoroughly enjoyed them. We've had great feedback and, and you know, great audience. And uh, I think 
for us, for Bill and I and Steph and I and Ben and I, just, just really interesting conversations that have been fortunate to attract a bunch of fantastic guests who are all kind of interested and keen to share their thoughts on stuff. Um, and, you know, it's interesting, the, the, one, the one thing that's kind of worked its way through so many of those podcasts is this inflation versus deflation debate. That, that if I had to kind of pick one topic that's been common to everything, that to me, with perhaps volatility as a close second, but this idea of are we about to enter a, a secular change and move into an inflationary environment has been the one thing that there's been great um, disagreement on both sides. But the beauty of this is everybody we've had on is so smart about these things. So whether you're listening to uh, Lacey Hunt talking about how deflation is still in our future, you know, here's a guy who's been right about it for 40 years. How do you count him out? But he's being countered by um, Russell Napier, who's been hardcore deflation for 20 years and now is a staunch inflationist. You know, Russell's uh, thought on this is, is extremely thought-provoking. So to have those great minds debating this, maybe not in lifetime, but it just gives the listeners so much to think about. And I, you know, personally, I think that's the one thing that everybody who has an investment portfolio has to think through is that, can I continue with a portfolio that does well in deflationary times? Or do I need to start thinking about adjusting it for, for oncoming inflation? Because if inflation is in our future, then there's very few portfolios in the world that are set up to, to, to handle that effectively the way they have been for the last 20 years. Yeah, I think one of, uh, I mean, Lacey's arguments are so strong, they're profound. Yeah. You know, you go through it and you, you scratch your head and say, why shouldn't I just buy, you know, 30-year zeros or strips in that market? Um, and, and you're right, they, they've been positioned for it very well. And I think one of the interesting things is that he still points out the, the thing that can derail that, that idea is that if the Fed's lib liabilities become legal tender, right, where yeah. they actually get in the true currency game. And uh, that's probably a little deeper than we want to go right now. But um, forget your background, Grant. You jumped off. This is a topic we're going to talk about so much about you. Let's talk about the inflation deflation camp. So wh where do you see yourself in, in this debate today? How are you thinking about it? Are you thinking about it? inflation as a 2021 phenomenon? Is it something that is a couple years out with these uh, policies need to compound? Wh wh where are you thinking about it? And how are you trying to advise people on their portfolios for uh, this, this raring debate that we're having? Well, for me, the way I handicap it is this. I think inflation is in our future um, because, as we all know, at this point, it's essential that they try and create some kind of inflation. Without it, um, the central banks are really in a corner. But at the same time, if they get it, you better be careful what you wish for because it's going to cause all kinds of problems. So this is why I think it's so important for people to have a view on this. And look, None of us know. I mean, that's the first thing to understand is none of us know if deflation or inflation is in our future. And so what I keep saying to people is, look, you, you need to go through the mental exercise. Look at your portfolio. Think through what an inflationary environment would reveal in terms of the stress points in that portfolio. And at that point, you then have to start thinking about handicapping its likely return. And, and if you think it's an unlikely event, which many people like Lacey do, and, and David Rosenberg, you know, I had a great conversation with him and Steph a couple of weeks ago, and Rosie's very much talking about the fact that deflation is here for the short term at the very least. If you think that's the case, then you don't need to really adjust your portfolio right now other than to be aware of, of what you probably need to do if that opinion changes, if you think inflation is in the likely future. Um, I think where we are is that we, we probably are likely to see deflationary forces 
prevailing in the short term. But I think that short term uh, is getting shorter by the day. I think I think the the short term deflation a year ago, you could probably say, well, short term is maybe another two or three years of this. The Fed have obviously promised they're not going to change rates till 2022. Now I lose track of how far out they're pushing that. Um, but I, I feel like with all the dry powder that's been pushed into these markets and the future dry powder that you're going to see coming into the markets in terms of additional stimulus, um, that makes me very nervous that we could get uh, inflation picking up quite quickly at some point. So for me, it's an exercise that I think people do need to go through now and, and understand the stresses it creates in their portfolio. Um, I think if you look at the commodity markets, you're starting to see signs that they are sniffing this out. You're starting to see very constructive chart patterns um, in all the base metals, really. We've seen obviously gold and silver are actually not really, a, it's not really an inflationary bet at the moment. It's a real rates bet. So I, I see enough signs that for me, I think you need to do the work now. You need to go through your portfolio and, and stress test it for inflation. We're seeing a curve steepen. There are all kinds of signs that suggest it's an important exercise to go through. So for me, I, I wouldn't shy away from starting to nibble at inflationary trades, even though they may not work for the near term. I feel like the damage that you're going to be potentially suffering if you are starting to set up for inflation at this point won't be too significant. You have to be careful. I don't think it's you go all in on the inflationary boat, as some people are. But I, I feel like if the change isn't here, then it's certainly something that you, know, you, you can maybe see from here. And I think it's arguably the most important secular change that we have to deal with in the last 40 years, potentially. Right. Well, we haven't really seen, you know, elevated levels, at least since we've had this kind of in the direction of downward pressure on inflation. Like, um, you know, over the last 40 years, you, you had elevated levels, but we haven't really had those spikes back. And so when you're thinking about, you know, positioning and you're talking about trying to leg into those trades, uh, you mentioned commodities. Commodities have benefited pretty well in this whole reflationary idea. You're starting to see finally the energy complex as well kind of participate in this rally. You mentioned gold, a real rates trade. Well, uh, one thing is if inflation comes in and, and rates aren't moving commensurately, it's obviously a real uh, a real rates trade. But I've, we've noticed uh, break-even spreads continue to really be on a tear. That is, uh, people buying tips or, or inflation-linked assets here in the U.S. Uh, that they're really starting to look uh, like they're, the, the market feels that there's going to be a true level of inflation even like five-year rates. We're not just talking about the ones yeah. that are correlated to oil. Um, what are some other trades that maybe aren't as crowded or things you need to think about that investors don't really talk about when they talk about inflation? We, we always hear about inflation linkers. We hear about gold. What other things are you thinking about when looking at that portfolio of what uh, what can help in this somewhat perhaps inflationary environment? Well, I think I think for me, what's important if we do enter a period of inflation or we start to get, and don't forget, inflation is all about expectations. That's why I think you're seeing those things you've seen is that people's expectations are starting to get there. And sometimes that's all you really need to get this trade moving. Mm -hmm. But for me, the important thing is if, if we do go that way, if we do see a change from a deflationary environment to an inflationary environment, then the beauty of it is, uh, as an equity investor particularly, is that it, it just changes everything. And so if you look at what's worked, if you look at momentum stocks, for example, I mean, it's been just the place to be. And value is just on the nose. I mean, nobody wants to own value stocks. Nobody wants to invest with value managers. Um, and a few value managers that I've spoken to are starting to see people 
you know, make inquiries and they're starting to see inflows. And that tells me that there could be a tremendous tailwind to that trade because value is so unloved at the moment. And there are, uh, you know, there are places you can go in these markets where where you can you know, go and look at the stuff Jeremy Grantham talks about, right? right. You know, poor, poor Jeremy, there, there's stuff there that that you know. If we do get a change in that that big secular environment, it's going to flip everything on its head because an inflationary environment is going to behave tangentially opposite to the deflationary environment we're in. So it kind of gives you almost the ease of saying to yourself, well, look, I, I'm just going to park some money in value ETFs for now, just so that if we do get this change, I want to own all the stuff that's been out of favor. Because if you've if you've ridden that tailwind of the FANG stocks and you've ridden that those kind of tailwinds, um, you are going to see people looking to sell those and looking to lock in profits. And where are they going to go? They're captive to the equity market. People are going to want to be in equities if it is an inflationary environment. And so you just have this beautiful setup where there are some great companies and great sectors um, that are that are really, really downtrodden and sold out and nobody wants to own them. So even you know, small caps, again, there are, there are small cap uh, indices. And, and the beauty of the ETF environment is not everybody has to be a stock picker anymore. And, and because of the way a lot of this passive money is allocated, it will get allocated to value strategies, not necessarily value stocks. And so you can sit quietly and say, okay, I'm going to start allocating to value away from growth, away from momentum, just quietly at the edges and just give yourself a kind of dog in that hunt and the ability to participate if it does shift down. The thing that worries me is if, if we see this, this inflationary button switch and we do see people start to try and really flip their portfolios on their heads, I, I do worry about the effect that this passive phenomenon is going to have as people try to move to the exits in, in what are very, very crowded trades in, in, for example, the FANG stocks. You know, there's plenty of people who have been talking about this, um, not, not least than Mike Green, who's done an enormous amount of work at Logica Funds on, on the passive phenomenon. Um, and, you know, one of our podcasts uh, that Bill and I did in the early days of the Endgame was with Mike and the conversation we had with him with about what could potentially happen uh, because of this massive shift to passive investment, if the market turns south and passive starts to do what it's been doing on the upside to the downside, is is actually quite frightening. And I and I would encourage people to to look for that and listen to what Mike says about, you know, when he talks about the market could theoretically go to zero, uh, it's a great headline. But when you listen to the reasons why, and I wouldn't uh, dream to paraphrase what Mike says because the depth of his thinking is is so extraordinary. Um, I think it's a really important thing to understand just how damaging this great tailwind to the upside could potentially be to the downside. Yeah, you point out, Mike, uh, I, I did an event with him, uh, I think it was late last spring during the market turmoil. And yeah, he's brilliant. Not to mention, he has a great Twitter handle. I think it's Professor Plum or something like that. Prof Plum 99. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a killer one. So shout out to Mike there. Um, so as you're, 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 you're talking about per, the sea, sea of change and you know, what's missing here always is the catalyst. So you talked about expectations, of course. You talked about perhaps you know, the, the Fed wishing for inflation and be careful what you wish for, you may get it because the expectations drive it. What else can you see as a catalyst here? I mean, we've talked about money printing. We've seen M2 velocity increase mass. I'm sorry, M2 supply increased massively last year. You know, highest prints on record in the U.S. We're talking about running massive fiscal deficits again. 
what 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 are some of the catalysts that could actually drive that new inflation narrative? Well, I think I think the, what the thing people need to watch out for is is just outright currency depreciation. So it's not really it's the tail wagging the dog. And if we st- if we continue to see the amount of deficit spending we're seeing around the world, at some point that is going to manifest itself in currencies. At the moment, it's still kind of a relative game. Um, and you're and you're still seeing volatility in currencies, and you're seeing you know the, the euro going up at the expense of the dollar, and then things turning around. But at some point, when this spending starts to really take off, and I think the next wave of stimulus spending is going to be the thing that potentially could trigger that, you are going to see people wanting to get out of currencies, um, and that's that is where you're going to see people start to move into commodities as a as a safe haven. I think we're seeing some of that in, in Bitcoin. We've seen a little bit of it in gold, but not too much. But when you start to see people losing faith in currencies, um, you know that will be quasi-inflation. Uh, also, I, I think Janet Yellen talked about today. I think my friend Dylan Grice put a great tweet out. Janet Yellen had talked about how, you know, the Fed has all the tools to get inflation under control should it start to get out of control. And Dylan made a great point when he when he retweeted this. He said, "Yeah, we know you have the tools, but do you have the stomach to use them?" And right. that is absolutely the most important question because we know they have the tools. Right? The tools, as Paul Volcker proved, are double-digit right. interest rates, right? But we right. all know that's completely impossible at this point in time. And I would posit that 3% interest rates are unbearable at this time. So yes, the Fed has the tools. Um, and so at the first point in the road where market investors, not necessarily a retail crowd, but sophisticated market players see a situation where the Fed have their feet held to the fire and said, okay, well, we know you have the tools. What are you going to do? Um, do they blink? And I would argue that they have no choice at this point but to blink. Um, and if they do blink, then I think the inflation trade is well and truly on. If they don't actually tackle inflation, and then look, they've already started to, to give themselves some kind of runway by being very careful to talk about how they are going to be quite happy to let inflation run a little above 2%. You know, maybe we'll let it run at 3% for a little while uh, to even out um, where we've been below that. But you know, as you well know, guys, three can turn to four fairly quickly. And if three turns to four and four starts to turn, look like it's turning to five, then they have something important to do. And, and at that point, if they don't come in and 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 actually do something rather than, let's say, jawbone and say, well, you know, we, we think this 5% is transitory. That's always a great word that they use. Yeah. Right. 5% is transitory. I think at that point, a lot of market participants have no choice but to assume that this is going to get away from them. And that, I think, could be a big a big uh, shot in the arm for this inflationary trade. Yeah. I'd like that it's always transitory when it doesn't achieve their objective, right? right. It's not, not right. to just that it misses. It's only transitory when it doesn't go into my narrative that I'm trying to spin here. So we haven't talked about the growth aspects too. So, you know, some people are cheering on some form of inflation. You kind of alluded to this at the beginning of just to help pay for the deficits that we've been running, uh, not just in the US, but the developed world as a whole. Um, what do you have on the outlook for the growth? Uh, you know, there's been a lot of hopes in asset prices based on the vaccination, the success of that. Um, people keep focusing on, we're going to get back to life as normal. I don't know what's normal. It sounds like the Caymans, you're back to normal down there. Um, but what do you think about in the growth prospects? Do we have some irreparable damage within labor markets? 
that's going to take time to truly be transitory to trade change people. How, how are you thinking about the growth environment? And is it is it just because we'll have a low base starting you know, in the second quarter here in the U.S. that it'll look very strong, but it's just truly transitory and temporary coming off the base? Or do we really have the tools to set off a catalyst for a new growth regime? I want to remind everyone that as we think about it, since the global financial crisis, the annualized GDP in the U.S. has been about 2.3%. So that's trendline growth, right? Can we get above that? How are you thinking about that? And just, you know, what do you think for the prospects for just the growth environment? Yeah, I think it's such an important question. It's great that you actually made that point about what trendline growth has been. You know, it's, it's, been, it's been weak. The, the world struggled with, if the U.S. has grown at 2.3% for a decade, that's not been great. But what we have had previously was China growing double digits, India growing double digits, Asia. You know, there were, there were places around the world that were picking up the slack. What we're now seeing is kind of this everybody's suffering from, let's call it lower growth uh, instead of low growth. It, it, countries are growing. And yeah, we've got some nice comps coming up. But, um, you know, when I, when I had that conversation with Rosie recently, the numbers he was pointing out, and, and nobody digs into the data better and deeper, I think, than, than Dave Rosenberg. And there's been an awful lot of ink spilled and, and keyboards punched to try and generate this idea of this V-shaped recovery. Because as always, it's always very important for that mental side of people to be invested in a V-shaped recovery because obviously sentiment leads the reality. But what Dave's found when he looks into the, into the data is when people are talking about, oh, there's been this surge in DIY um, spending at you know, the Home Depots and the Lowe's, and there's been a surge in people fixing their own cars and all that kind of stuff. But you know, as Dave pointed out, we're seeing double-digit rebounds in things that equate to about four percent of GDP. So it doesn't really move the needle. I think the damage to the economy—it's not irreparable, but it's going to take a, a significant amount of time for us to get back to where we were. And that's kind of been masked by by these stimulus checks. You know, I, I, I'm from the UK originally, and there's been an extraordinary amount of stimulus uh, pushed out, three, four hundred billion dollars by the, the Chancellor of, of the Exchequer right now, which is absolutely unaffordable for the UK, um, completely unaffordable. And now, obviously, we're starting to get to the point where the rubber meets the road and we're going to have to start talking about taxes. There's, there's a lot of discussion in the UK about windfall tax um, grabs against the online retailers, Amazon. They're calling it the Amazon tax because these guys have made hay, obviously, while the sun shone. And meanwhile, high street retail is completely a dumpster fire in the UK. And so you, I think you're going to start to see uh, a lot of these countries that have uh, massive holes in their budgets are going to have to find money from somewhere. Because look, we all know you can't just continue to print it and throw it into that hole. At some point, you need to take it from somewhere. Um, and the only place you can take it is from the people who have it. And on the basis that the number of people who have that wealth has declined over this last year, it means the taxes are going to have to be bigger on the haves, uh, on the Amazons of the world, on the Googles, the Netflixes of the world, the guys who've been making, making money. And that's going to cause more problems. So I don't think we're going to get back to trendline growth consistently for some time. What, what interests me is, is at what point do, does that kind of reality start to seep in that Yes, the band-aids put on by both fiscal and monetary policy have done a great job, but we can't do that forever. It, it doesn't work if that is the solution to subtrend growth. And if we realize we can't do that forever, where does that 
come home to roost? Does it come home to roost in the currency? Does it come home to roost in failed bond auctions? Well, in the EU, the ECB bought 85% of sovereign issuance last year and 100% of the southern Mediterranean countries. How, how much more of that can they do? Well, in, in, the, in, the, in the sense of the European countries, obviously, the, sorry, the southern countries, they're at their limit, but it doesn't mean to say they won't keep doing it. Um, can they buy more than 85% of Northern European issuance? Clearly, they can buy 15% more. But at what point does that start to matter to the euro? Do these enormous deficits in the US start to, to cause problems for treasury auctions? And if so, do the Fed start going down that playbook that Japan's followed, that the ECB's followed? You'd have to say that, yes, that's what they're going to be forced to do, because I don't see any way that we can get back to 3 4% growth, which with these which with these larger deficits is what we're really going to need to try and chip away at that. Sorry, this was my dog barking. Um, yeah, the dog so, doesn't like your three your big no, deficits. No. Well, he, he, he's convinced we're going to see three or four, so he's uh, he always gets upset when I talk about this. But um, uh, so so that, yeah, that that that's what I think. The the problem here is is that you're pushing a rock uphill to create the kind of growth that you need, and sooner or later, I think somewhere that has to be reflected. It's certainly not been reflected in risk asset prices for reasons that we understand fully with all the amount of stimulus that's going on. But at some point, um, I think this realization that what we're doing to keep the wheels on is is only justifiable if a return to trend growth and ideally above it is in our future. And I think what what time is perhaps going to tell us is that that return is getting pushed further and further out. And at some point, something has to give, unfortunately. And I suspect it's either going to be the bond market, the currency, or both. Yeah. Well, I, th- I think when you look at it, too, uh, it's it's one of those, those kind of ideas where, well, we, we, we did all this extraordinary measures. They work. So this is going to be the playbook going forward, right? I yeah. mean, QE was an extraordinary event. Now it's just talked about as policy. I mean, Jay Powell himself says it's part of the playbook. It's one of their tools, right? And so I think you have the same thing with the fiscal authorities. It's that, well, mailing out checks or, you know, making sure that, you know, we have a a better backstop and Band-Aid when there's unemployment. Right. And so, you know, it's it's not going to the root of the matter. It's those temporary fixes that become somewhat permanent. And then we just compound those policies and then we look back and say, how the heck did we get here? Right. And I think that that's kind of one of those moments you're talking about. And where does it where does it impact which market? Is it currency? Is it inflation? And by extension, the bond market there, or well, is well, it something? Yeah, you know, you know it's in, it's interesting what's become our barometer for success with those policies, right? Because success from an economic standpoint has been the system not collapsing, right? It's been you know, avoiding a we, great. We all depression. we all root for that. We all root yeah, for of course. That's good, but of course, that should be the bare minimum, right? That right. shouldn't be success. That should be the bare minimum, right? But 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 how yeah, we're right. measuring it is in risk asset prices. We're talking about the stock market being at all-time highs and junk bonds being at all-time highs. And we're talking about these risk assets floating higher as success. And I think market practitioners understand that's not success at all. In fact, that's arguably failure. It's great if you're in the business and you and you have access to liquidity and you can get leverage and you can run these things up because you have that implicit backstop. But it's it's anything but success because it's hollowing out the economy is hollowing out the middle class by taking away any ability to to generate income on your savings, and yet it's being it's being kind of held up as success. And I think that's very dangerous because what it does is it it tells 
the middle class, it tells this famous 99%, hey, success. You know, they've hung the mission accomplished banner on the, on the, on the deck of the aircraft carrier. Right. When, when people are struggling to pay rent and they're reliant on $600 uh, stimulus checks, but they're reading about how Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos made another $15 billion last week because their stocks went up. So I, I think it's very dangerous what the promises of success have become right now, to be honest with you. Well, so on that note, um, very, very prescient talk, topic here in the U.S. has been uh, the Reddit army, right? And how they're uh, trying to democratize finance. And so some people look at all of us working in the business, being institutional investors that, you know, perhaps we're the bad guy in all of this. But what do you what do you think about this movement? I mean, it reeks of stuff where you saw in like the, the, the online uh, forums back when they had the, um, I forget what they were called, the little chat rooms, like, uh, you know, the IRC rooms and things like yeah. that, uh, where people were getting together. But you talk about depressed savings rates, right? The, the inability to earn a decent return on capital through your bank or, or wherever you do it. So you have to take risks. Is, is this a response mechanism or is this just, you know, utter speculation and, you know, pe- people trying to get involved and, and make a quick buck, which again, finance is predicated on that. So, so no disrespect to those trying to do that. It's just it's utter speculation, or is there a bigger movement underway? How, how do you how do you feel about all this? You know, it's it's a it's a great question, and I think it's a really important thing for everybody to kind of think about. And I and I, and I don't think there's a simple answer. I think uh, what's interesting is so many people on Wall Street are cheering on these retail investors. Right? There there are plenty of us that go, look, I I hope you all sold your GameStop shares at four hundred. Because I think that would, that would be yeah. that would be phenomenal if you did it's that. Phenomenal and bag it, move on, and just be happy. Right. You can right. the trade of a lifetime, right? Yeah, it, it, that would be amazing. If 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 Main Street actually did clean out Wall Street on that one trade and take the thirty-five billion dollars and put it in the bank accounts, no one would be happier than me, nor you or nor Sam, I'm sure. And there's a lot of Wall Street guys that are cheering them on. Unfortunately, what we recognize, I think, after years in the business, is that it's not as simple as that, and that's. Most likely not what happened, but just because of the nature of the way this, this these kind of retail manias tend to go down, and, and unfortunately they do tend to happen the same way. And and you know finance is uh, is not a simple science. It's a it's a complicated, convoluted um, practice. And buying shares of GameStop, or more importantly, perhaps in this sense, buying call options on GameStop, is not a simple thing to do. I think. Wall Street made an awful lot more than Main Street out of those runs, unfortunately. Um, and I think an awful lot of retail will have been sucked in at the top and will be sitting on significant losses. And, and unfortunately, with this kind of gambling culture and everyone locked at home and looking for kind of ways to play the market, um, it, it's, it's one thing to put your $600 stimulus check if you're a millennial living at home with mom and dad and, and it's kind of free money and it's landing in your lap and you've kind of got involved on the boards and it's all fun and games. That's one thing. Uh, but there are plenty of people, thousands of people, and you're starting to see these awful stories appear on, on the, on the bulletin boards now about how the people who put all their money in GameStop at $400 and two days later it's at 60. Uh, and it was money they couldn't afford to lose. And I, and I think it's a tremendous shame. I, I really do. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, this this idea that that we're sticking it to the hedge funds. Look, Melvin Capital had its problems, um, and I don't think there were too many people on Wall Street that were were, were experienced too much sadness at, at the kind of fate that befell Melvin. If you're that levered, 
and this happens, we all know what's going to happen in the game. But to, to recast that as, as Main Street sticking it to Wall Street is, is unfortunately wider the mark. And I, I, I think that what happens from here is, is complicated enough that reducing it to you know, diamond hands and, and never sell is, is to miss the point and is actually going to funnel an awful lot of money back into the pockets of Wall Street. Because this isn't like going to the casino where there are one set of rules and the house has an edge. You're going into a casino where the rules are actually really, really complicated. And while the game prima facie looks very straightforward, you put your money in, you see what happens. The rules, as we found out with the Robinhood um, margin call, uh, what Robinhood did, anyone who's in the game and understands how clearing brokers work, knew that that wasn't necessarily Robinhood being bad guys. They had a $3 billion margin call they couldn't meet. And so they, they restricted trading. We, we understand that's how, that, that's how it works. The narrative on the bulletin boards was Robinhood are bad guys. Now, the big problem with that, and I've spoken about this before, is that the CEO of Robinhood went on CNBC and lied. He committed series of securities fraud. He said, we didn't have the margin call. It wasn't anything to do with that. Later on that night, and here's where the problems of social media appear, in a clubhouse sitting where Elon Musk is questioning him, he comes on and says, we had a $3 billion margin call that we couldn't meet that morning. And we talked the regulators down to $770 million. And then we went out and raised $2.4 billion from investors. So a big problem of this is the enabling and the kind of, again, hollowing out of regulation by likes of the SEC in terms of policing this and allowing the likes of Elon Musk to commit securities fraud in plain view and slapping him with a $20 million fine. He's made billions of dollars from the increase in the stock price from that securities fraud. And if you take away, as someone said to me, I forget who said it now, but someone said to me that, that um, you know, capitalism without bankruptcy, without uh, fraud charges is like Catholicism without hell. And it's so true. You know, you have to have the, the fear of, of telling lies and committing securities fraud and, and, and going to prison for this stuff. And it's absent. So the market has become a casino. And unfortunately, it's a casino with very, very complicated rules. And the new guys at the tables don't get that. They think it's you roll the craps, you roll the dice, and if it comes up the right number, everything goes up forever. And it's, it's a great shame to see these stories. I, say, I, I hope everybody is in this on the retail side gets their Lambo and walks away because that would, that would give me a, put an enormous smile on my face, I have to say. I fear the worst of you sound more like a crypto guy if you're focused on Lambos. Well, let's see him at something. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's, I mean, it definitely marks an interesting shift in the, the market dynamics with the, the retail investors coming in. And you know, like you, you know, Jeff and I were cheering them on. You know, in terms of just you know, laying the so-called little person win in this. But it is something that the regulators certainly have their eyes on. You know, last week the uh, Yellen pulled together the SEC and the CFTC, they determined that in terms of the market functioning aspect, it was sound, but lo and behold, you know, they're investigating to, to, to take a look at uh, each of the actions that were undertaken by the participants. And, you know, they're in both chambers of the house, I believe they have committees yeah. that are looking into this as well. But uh, it's just amazing to watch. It was incredible to watch the level of coordination that was required and the cohesion that they maintained on the way up is always good. But once you reach that top and when people start getting a little bit itchy on wanting to pull out, that's when the cohesion falls, starts to fall apart, right? Each yeah. person is their own leader at that point. So I think the parlance is uh, the diamond hands quickly become paper hands and that you, you, know, you descend back to earth. But uh, 
one of the things I wanted to, to touch back with you on, uh, Grant, is you mentioned earlier on that you're in the Cayman Islands. Um, wondering if you'd be open to sharing, you know, some of the you know, the factors in your move to that, you know, to, to the Cayman Islands from where you were previously. I know here, you know, bringing in some of the, the discussion topics that we had earlier here in the in California, at least, you know, the the topic of the last year or so, especially as we've been shown the ability to, to be able to work from home, you know, from some extent or remote working, a lot of people are contemplating whether or not they should be picking up um, and moving from high cost, high tax type states where you see the costs increasing and only, you know, you know forecasted increase into the future as well and you know, replacing their, their locations to something that is of a lower cost like Texas or, yeah. you know, Arizona, New Mexico, but, uh, Cayman Islands takes it to the extreme. Yeah, that's a that's a it's a it's a it's a big difference there. Well, it it, it does in some senses, and it doesn't in others. I think I think um, this is this is a low tax, high cost environment. So the cost of living here is astronomical. It's, I moved here from Singapore, which at the time was um, was the number one most expensive place in the world to live. Supposedly, when they do that that chart every year, um, and this place is as expensive as Singapore. Uh, now there is zero income tax, but that doesn't help you if you're an American, you're taxed worldwide. So you're consequently, there's a, there's a surprisingly small amount of Americans here considering we're you know, 150 miles off the, off the coast of Florida. Uh, there's a lot of Brits here, there's a lot of Aussies here, um, you know, other countries that don't get taxed globally. This is a, this is a good place to be. Um, you know, it's a good place to have a company, but it's, it's funny, um, there's a great amount of stigma attached to the Cayman Islands. It has this reputation that uh, you know, anyone here must be a, a drug dealer or a money launderer. And I can assure you, uh, you can use this in any testimony that I'm not either. But trying to trying to set up a business here and get bank accounts open, you know, for for, for one of the world's leading banking uh, countries, supposedly, the banking system here is abject. I mean, it really is just incredibly difficult to get decent banking here. So I think there's there's an awful lot of things going for the Cayman Islands. I, I moved here, it had nothing to do with tax. I, I really moved here because uh, the business I co-founded, Real Vision, um, we, we based here simply on geographical uh, requirements of, of wanting to be in the same time zone as our biggest market, which was the US. But because all the founders were were not US citizens, we didn't need to put ourselves into the IRS noose at, at any point in time. So it was really a geographical decision. Um, and uh, yeah, it, has a, it has a lot going for it, um, but it's a very small place. And that never really reared itself as a problem when one could travel around the world freely because anytime you were here for an extended period of time if you wanted to go to miami to a city or to new york or to dallas or you know anywhere to go to a city and experience a bit of you know culture and life and restaurants and theaters and whatever it was a really straightforward thing to do for the weekend but once you shut the borders on a place like this um it becomes a very small island very very quickly uh, and while it's Everybody's idea of paradise, you know, crystal clear blue waters and sunshine and beaches and zero COVID and uh, no restrictions on gathering or any of that stuff, which is fantastic. Um, you, you can't help but get claustrophobic being here for a period of time. So they, they, they've done a great job in dealing with COVID here. They've done a remarkable job. They, they, the, the government has really um, out, 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 outdone themselves, I think. Um, but it's, it's, it's wreaked havoc on the tourist industry, as you'd imagine, which is by far the, the biggest thing here, apart from legal and compliance and hedge funds and stuff. So I, I wouldn't be surprised to see next year taxes being 
imposed upon those kinds of industries to try and cushion the pain felt by the tourist industry. But I don't think anywhere today is either uh, a 100% great solution or somewhere where if you don't get taxed on an income basis, you're not going to get taxed on a, on a VAT or a duty basis. I don't think the, I think the days of low taxation jurisdictions are pretty much gone now unless you want to move to somewhere like Vietnam or Cambodia or you know places that are, are really not in the mainstream of finance. I mean, beautiful countries, both of those. But but it, you know, Hong Kong used to be an incredibly cheap place to live, not anymore. Singapore used to be a pretty cheap place to live, not anymore. So I think those days of of kind of first world exotic countries being tax-friendly jurisdictions, I think you can pretty much put a pin in that now, to be honest with you. Yeah, well, it's kind of depressing. Uh, but again, it's what happens when people move in, right? It's like, yeah. we move there for no income taxes, and we want to use all the resources. So, so at some point, the piper has to be paid. Yeah. So I guess one thing we've been talking about was the inflation side. There's a lot of uh, consensus ideas out there today. And I think it, it seems to me that the market seems to be pretty lopsided in some of these ideas that inflation's coming back, like the dollar devaluation, um, stocks are the only game in town. Uh, what do you think are some of the risks out there that people aren't talking about? Because when consensus builds like this, uh, again, a lot of it's momentum driven, the trade's on, people are making money on it. It feels very comfortable. We used to always say that there, there's nothing like good, like keeping that low cost basis stuck in your portfolio to remind yourself how smart you are, right? Look at that. I did, I did a great trade, right? So what are some of the risks out there that people aren't talking about or that you see that we should be discussing more? Look, to me, the two most important risks to understand, one is volatility. And uh, I don't just mean that from a market perspective, but I think we have to understand societal volatility. And we are at a point in time where suppressed volatility is everywhere. And anytime you suppress volatility at some point, it, you know, it's a naturally occurring, occurring phenomenon. It is going to explode at some point. And, and because we've become so used to dampened volatility and because we've become so used to it not really being something we have to worry about, you know, the short vol trade has been a great trade for, for such a long time now. It's also led to the, to the other thing that worries me, which is correlation. As you, as you said, right, everybody's in the same trades, everybody's on the same side of the boat. And anytime you have that extraordinary correlation and you have extraordinarily dampened volatility, particularly... Uh, I think away from markets, uh, you know, political volatility, um, societal volatility, these are things that you can't measure with numbers. You can't look at your, your Excel sheets and your quant models every day and, and predict the, the, the storming of the capital, for example. And while those things haven't necessarily had any kind of long-term long negative effect on risk assets, as that tends to increase, and, and gets broader based around, around the world, then you do reach tipping points where people start to decide that, that volatility is, is either underpriced uh, and they want more exposure to, to hedges for it, or you start to see volatility take off just because of, of, of the, the sheer number of people that want protection. And we haven't really seen that for a while. And that comes back to this belief that the Fed and the other central banks and governments have this all under control. And I think what the events of January showed us was that that control um, is extremely fragile. And whether it be in, in Washington, D.C., 
or it be the ongoing Gilets process in France, which have been going on for a couple of years now and just don't get the coverage that they perhaps warrant, or the stuff we've seen in the Netherlands, or the stuff we've seen in Austria, right across mainland Europe, you know, normally pretty peaceful countries. And for this stuff to happen in the winter there, when nobody wants to go out and protest, you, know, you, you can't expect this stuff in the summer when it's nice and warm and everyone's you know, protesting out in the, in the squares in Spain and everything's great. But to have people in Holland protesting violently in the streets in January tells you that something has changed. Um, and so, so they're the things that, that I think people need to pay more attention to is, is understanding how fragile the social fabric is, understanding the, that this conflict, which is kind of amusing when it gets memefied in OK Boomer and all, all this kind of stuff is, is you're kind of funny, but there's an undertone to that which is rooted in haves versus have-nots. It's rooted in a transition of power that the millennial generation uh, want and feel like they are old enough and responsible enough to take the reins of power. And, and let's face it, they are. The, the, the leading wave of millennials approaching 40 now. So, so it is their time. And, and one thing I'm looking for is you know, when we start to get elections, whether it's midterms in a couple of years or, or other elections around the world, is start to see how young politicians start to poll. Because I think if you start to see surprising results in terms of you know 35-year-old, 40-year-old senators starting to get elected a fair clip or across there in Europe, you start to see young politicians. That tells me that this, this power struggle between the boomer generation and the millennial generation with Gen Xers like me just caught in the middle, having never really had our hand on the tiller at any point in our lives, uh, <laughs> What that signifies is, is a redistribution because once that power structure changes, it gives power to the people who are the have-nots and who have not done well uh, over the last 50 years as the boomer generation have, look, by no fault of their own, by pure coincidental good fortune, happened to be born in the 60s and have ridden this extraordinary 50-year wave to great prosperity. Um, but unfortunately, the last 20 years of that wave of prosperity has come at the expense of millennials and Gen Z, largely. And so if they start to take the reins of power, which is going to happen, let's face it, even if it has to wait till the boomer generation largely dies out, they are going to want to make things right for their generation. And that is another power struggle, which I don't think um, investors are correctly positioned for. I think it will be very confiscatory. Um, and if you get to a period where we, we, we reach confiscatory policies, Let's face it, the only people you can confiscate stuff from are the people who have it. And it's very, very clear where that wealth sits right now and, and, and where it doesn't. Yeah, um, I mean, there's there's a lot in there. I mean, I, I think it's just a great way to end it, Grant. I mean, just to give people food for thought, too, that it's not just about markets when you talk about suppression, but society and just the impacts we have. And at some point, you know, um, you know we're talking about... Uh, having more equitable policies, making sure more people participate. It's even on the Fed's docket these days. You, you hear that a lot more, right? Yeah. About talking about that and, and trying to fix that. So uh, I think it's a great way to end it. But, you know, Grant, one thing before you leave, I got to introduce you to Sam's favorite part of the show because we've got to get into that real quick. So All right. you know, yeah, here we go. I'm ready. All right, Grant. And my favorite part of the show is Sherman says... offer a series of unique alter, alternating prompts between you and Mr. Sherman here. 
And I'm going to start it off first with Jeff at $15 minimum wage. Uh, bring it on. We have it here in California, right? It, it doesn't apply great everywhere across the country, but you want to get inflation? Let's start with $15 minimum wage. All right, we'll see how we'll see the Fed stomach at that point, right? I, I, I think this fifteen dollar minimum wage—it's like the—it's like the six minute abs in the wrong direction. Like you had something about Mary. It's you know fifteen fifteen dollar minimum wage. Why not a sixteen dollar minimum yeah, wage? Right, exactly. But the six minute abs is like the five minute abs, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, exactly. So, yeah. No, look, I mean, it works here in California because of cost of living, right? And it's reflected in pricing. But um, does it work in Alabama? Probably not, right? So. Yeah, yeah, and that's what they're talking about at the national level now. Is it was interesting to see that actually uh, Bernie Sanders, of all people, was against it at least for now, just because of the the impact, the economic impact it would have on already struggling businesses, right? So, well, you have to think about it this way too. When we did it in California, it didn't happen from seven to fifteen. It was gradual steps. I mean, we've been doing a dollar, dollar fifty a year, and it was depending on business size as well. So smaller businesses were lower than than the other ones. So. There's ways of implementing that. It's not like it goes overnight and your inflation shows up. But as we've noticed, uh, there's a burrito place where they used to be called Ocho. And our joke when it first came in was everything's eight dollars. So it's Ocho. Right. Um, Now we now we call it like Quince. You know, it does get up there, you know. So anyway, um, it's moving in the wrong direction there. But that's assuming that they're still around. We haven't been there in, in a year or so. Anyway. Yeah. We've got to one. We got to one prompt, Sam. This is your your yeah. goal here, right? Yeah, here we go. I'm gonna keep you guys moving <laughs> with the second, with the next one to Mr. Williams with fiscal spending. Oh, how high can you go? I mean, they are going to be throwing multiple, multiple trillions at this. I don't. I, don't, I think we've just seen the tip of the iceberg so far. Back to Mr. Sherman with Wall Street bets. Good luck. Look, it's a hard game. It's a hard game, you know, and look, you get it. If you guys are crushing it, keep crushing it. No one here is rooting against you. Just be careful. Know what you're doing. Realize when something goes up to to 20x or 30x, it doesn't tend to keep doing it in those multiples. So size accordingly. Learn how to size your bets. All right. Back to Mr. Williams with short sellers. Uh, Unfairly vilified. Learn the difference between short sellers and leverage shorts and uh and the kind of the short sellers who are the opposite of pump and dumpers you know, everybody no one really vilifies pump and dumpers which is what the kind of scammy shorts are on the downside you know they, they get themselves short put the retail out uh, put the report out and cover them but short sellers like the mark Cahodes of the world who identify fraudulent companies you know, enron tyco Worldcom, all exposed by short sellers Leverage shorts is another matter. You know, the melvin capitals of the world leverage shorts you know the rules going in and you you, you get what's coming to you ultimately yeah, you got to give Jim Tanos a shout out there too. Yeah, right? absolutely you, right. You, absolutely and you right. do it right. You do it accordingly. And you're right. It's it's leverage that kills you more than anything, both directions. So. All right, back to you, Jeff, with bipartisan. I'll throw in a <laughs> ship after that, bipartisanship. Okay, a ship. Um, a ship of people who act like they get along. Huh? Um, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful. Let's say hopeful. <laughs> Haven't seen it in a long time. Yeah. Not sure we will, but, um, but you know, fingers crossed. Yeah, it looks good on paper. Um, Alexei Navalny. Well, oh, brave, brave man. I, I, I think, I think one of the things to watch this coming year is is actually going to be Putin. Um, uh, ben Hunt is someone who I've spent a lot of time talking with. He thinks that this is a year Putin's going to come under some severe pressure, um, possibly regime change in Russia. So I think. Navalny could be 
a kind of a, a pin in that balloon. So I think it's, it's something to watch. It's not just about the value. This is about Putin too. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about protesters going out in the the depths of winter in Holland, and let's talk yeah. about them going out there in Russia, right? And then well, I think it's always the depths of winter in Russia. So I, I think they made a stronger <laughs> stuff than the Dutch. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, let's move to the next one with full employment. Long ways away. Don't don't believe the U three. We're a long ways away. People want jobs in this country, and they're being kind of classified out of that uh, participation. So. We got a long, long road to recovery. Cash. Have some. Have more than you've had for a while. I, I think it's time to, to, to increase allocation of cash for sure. Grant, on that note, is it physical cash or is it uh, ones and zeros cash? Uh, look, I, I think you know, one size doesn't fit all. I, let's, let's, let's substitute liquidity for cash. And whether your liquidity is, is dollars in the bank or Bitcoin or gold, whatever it may be, but I think being liquid uh, right now is is a sensible, given everything we've spoken about and this potential re regime change in, uh, in in the inflationary deflation environment. I think it's being more liquid than you have been makes sense now. That's all. All right. And then the last one um, for the, the final round here is international travel. Looking Please. forward to it again. Please. Please. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm not stuck on an island like Mr. Williams here, but, um, you know, I, I do crave it. So uh, that's something that I've always enjoyed. So I'm uh, looking forward to doing it again and yeah. hopefully in 2021. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And then the last one to wrap us up here for you, Mr. Williams, is central bank bubbles. Getting ready to burst. Getting ready to burst. I, I, think, I think this may be the straw that breaks the camel's back. I'm not saying it's going to happen imminently, but the fallout from what they're going to have to do for the next 12 to 18 months alongside the, the, um, the, uh, the fiscal side of things may finally push them into that corner they've been painting themselves into. Yeah, I think the first thing that has to happen is the bubble and hubris has to explode from central bankers, right? Oh, we're good. Then. We're good for a while. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but but that one probably takes the actual crisis happening before they, they see any of their own ramifications. Yeah. So Grant, this was awesome. We really appreciate you taking the time today. It's been a wonderful conversation. We'd love to have you back. Uh, you always have top of mind stuff. You put out good research. So can you tell our listeners where they can get in touch with the stuff you're putting out with Supplycast, your newsletter? Uh, let our listeners know where to, where to hear more from you. Yeah, by all means. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I just relaunched my website. Finally, I've got everything in one place. You can find all that at uh, grant-williams.com. You can find things that make you go home there. You can find the Grant Williams podcast there and a bunch of uh, presentations that I've done over the years. And if you're so inclined, you can follow me on Twitter at uh, TTMYGH. Okay. And that stands for things that make you go, hmm. So I practice. I got to use it you again. It. So, yeah. It. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. So again, uh, this has been the Sherman Show. Here, we've had an excellent time with Grant Williams. Uh, you can see this on on uh, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, all kinds of stuff like that. Uh, we record this one in video too. So if you want to see Grant's smiling face, hunker down the Caymans with a COVID-free environment, you can go to YouTube.com/backslash/DoubleLineCapital and check out the video along with that as well. Uh, remember to follow us on the Twitter at uh, at Sherman Show Pod. Uh, Sam and Jeff Maber have launched a new podcast called Double Line Morning Minutes. Um, so they're going to kick that off before the open every Monday. And of course, we launched Channel 11 last year. So uh, like Grant, uh, we're doing more stuff uh, from, from our homes these days. 
and trying to make sure we stay plugged into our clients. So again, thanks everyone for listening. Thank you again, Grant, for taking the time with us today. Great pleasure, guys. Really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. Audio presentation represents DoubleLine's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without express written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefor, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. DoubleLine is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any DoubleLine entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any DoubleLine entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2021 DoubleLine Capital.